Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Please welcome Marjorie Vijay. I promise to be nice no matter how many books I write. Um, thank you, Noel, and thank you. I want it's so. I mean, any you're, anyone who's a writer, anyone who's picked up a book knows that Skylight is the mecca, one of the meccas of of, of literary life. And so, uh, coming here at the what is the end of a book tour it feels like arriving at the inner sanctum of, of, of a pilgrimage. So thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for coming out. Um, I have always, I've not spent a lot of time in LA, but I really, I've, I've grown to love it um, and love the people who live here. Um, so this really feels like a fitting place to, to end um, this little trip I've done with this book. Uh, and I would love to read from it for a while, and then I would love to answer questions. Um, and hopefully we can have a, an engaging conversation <laughs> about it, um, during which I will, of course, be very nice. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Maybe I'll just change it up, just to surprise you. <laughs> Maybe I'll just be dead mean. <laughs> Who knows? All right. Well, I don't want to waste any more time, so I'm going to begin. <laughs> Thank you so much. I am 30 years old, and that is nothing. I know what this sounds like, and I hesitate to begin with something so obvious, but let me say it anyway at the risk of sounding naive. And let it stand alongside this. Six years ago, a man I knew vanished from his home in the mountains. He vanished in part because of me, because of certain things I said, but also things I did not have until now the courage to say. So, you see, there is nothing to be gained by pretending to a wisdom I do not possess. What I am, what I was, and what I have done, all of these will become clear soon enough. This country already ancient when I was born in 1982, has changed every instant I've been alive. Titanic events have ripped it apart year after year, each time rearranging it along slightly different scenes. And I have been touched by none of it. Prime ministers assassinated, 
peasant gorillas waging war in emerald jungles, fields cracking under the iron heel of a drought, nuclear bombs cratering the wide desert floor, mobs crashing against mobs, and always coming away bloody. Consider this. Even now, there are people huddled in a room somewhere waiting to die. This is what I have told myself for the last six years, each time I have had the urge to speak. It will make no difference in the end. But lately the urge has turned into something else, something with sharper edges, which sticks under the ribs and makes it dangerous to breathe. So let me be clear here at the start. If I do speak, if I do tell what happened six years ago in that village in the mountains, a village so small it only appears on military maps, it will not be for reasons of nobility. The chance for nobility is over. Even this story or confession or whatever it turns out to be, is too late. My mother, asleep. The summer afternoon, the sun an open wound, the air outside straining with heat and noise. But here, in our living room, the curtains are drawn. There is a dim and deadly silence. My mother lies on the sofa, cheek pressed to the armrest, asleep. The bell rings. She doesn't open her eyes right away, but there is movement behind her lids, the long return from wherever she has been. She stands, walks to the door. Hello, madam. Hello, hello. I'm selling some very nice pens. Good afternoon, madam. Please listen to this offer. If you subscribe to one magazine, you get 50% a long-lashed boy with a laminated sign. I am from deaf and dumb society. Oh, get lost, my mother says, and shuts the door. Somebody once described my mother as a strong woman. From the speaker's tone, I knew it was not intended as a compliment. This was, after all, the woman who cut off all contact with her own father after he repeatedly ignored his wife's chronic lower back pain, which turned out to be the last stages of pancreatic cancer. The woman who once broke a flickering light bulb by flinging a scalding hot vessel of rice at it. The woman whose mere approach made shopkeepers hurry into the back, praying for invisibility. The woman who sometimes didn't sleep for three nights in a row the woman who nodded sympathetically through our neighbor's fond complaints about the naughtiness of her five-year-old son then said, with every appearance of sincerity, he sounds awful. Shall I slit his throat for you and get it over with? <laughs> this was the woman whose daughter I am, was, am. All else flows from that. When she died, I was 21, 
in my last year of college. When I got the call, I took an overnight bus back to Bangalore, carrying nothing but a fistful of change from the ticket. Eleven people came to her funeral, including my father, me, and Stella, our maid, who brought her youngest son. We stood near the doorway, wedged between the blazing mouth of the electric crematorium and the March heat. The only breeze came from Stella's son, who kept spinning the red rotors of a toy helicopter. The evening after the funeral, after everybody had gone, my father shut himself into his bedroom, and I left the house and walked. Between the two of us, we had finished several pegs of rum and a quarter bottle of whiskey. I found myself standing on a busy main road with no recollection of having arrived there. People flowed around me. Shops and bars glittered and trembled, and I tried to think of the future. In a few days, I would return to college. My final year exams were just three weeks away. After that, I would pack up my things and return to Bangalore. After that, nothing. A bus rattled past, mostly empty, only a few tired heads lolling in the windows. A waiter in a dirty banyan dumped a bucket of chalky water onto the road in front of a restaurant. Earlier that day, while a gangly priest droned on and on, my father had overturned my mother's ashes into a scummy green concrete tank. And then he had continued, somewhat helplessly, to hold on to the clay urn. Without thinking, I snatched it from his hand and dropped it onto a rubbish pile. It was something my mother herself might have done. The look on the Vadyar's face was of shock and faintly delighted disgust. I waited for my father to bring it up later, but he didn't. I stood in the same spot until the waiter, now with two other men, emerged from the restaurant. They were dressed to go out in close-fitting shirts lustrous as fish scales. They passed right before me. I heard a scrap of their laughter and tensed, ready for a fight, waiting for the leer, the cat call, the line from a love song. But they crossed the road and were gone. Though he insisted on all the right rituals for my mother, my father claimed to have shed God and Brahminism long ago in his own youth, finding a substitute in engineering, Simon and Garfunkel, the wealth of nations, and long-haired college companions who drank late into the night, filling the room with will smoke and boozy rants about politics, both of which eddied and went nowhere. Three years of a master's degree at Columbia left him with a fondness for America, especially her jazz, her confidence, and her coffee, which, he liked to say happily, was the worst he'd ever tasted. When he returned to India, he worked for a few years. Then my grandfather, as had always been the plan, provided him 
with the capital to start a factory manufacturing construction equipment. And when that foundered and fell apart, more capital for a second factory, which flourished. My father in those years liked to speak of rationality and pragmatism as though they were personal friends of his. Yet it was he who inevitably rose to his feet at the end of one of our dinner parties, who raised his glass and declared, blinking away tears, to you, my dear friends, and to this rarest of nights. He had the emotional man's faith in the weight of his own ideas and the, I messed that line up. He had the intelligent man's faith in the weight of his own ideas and the emotional man's impatience with anyone who did not share them. As he grew older and more successful, his confidence did not change. It merely settled and became wider, a well-fed confidence. Only my mother could make him falter. She had, apparently, made him falter the day he arrived on a brand new motorcycle to inspect as a potential bride the youngest daughter of a mid-level Indian Railways employee. He saw a woman standing barefoot on the street wearing a shabby cotton sari. He asked if he was in the right place and my mother replied, certainly, if what you're here to do is look ridiculous. My father used to love to tell this story and also to tell how she had rejected suitor after suitor before him. One for inquiring about her family's dental and medical history. One for inquiring whether the dowry would be paid in gold or cash. One for simply smiling too much. I have no way of knowing if any of this is true, since my mother never told stories, least of all about herself. But I've heard they went on a walk, during which my father outlined his plans for his life. Grow the company for a few years, have a child in three, maybe another child the year after. At the end, he paused for my mother's reaction. Well, you do talk a lot, she said thoughtfully. But if you're going to be working all day, I suppose I won't have to listen to most of it. <laughs> my mother with her lightning tongue and her small collection of idols on a shelf in the kitchen. My mother, with her stubborn refusal to admit the existence of meat or other faiths, who crossed the road when we passed a halal butcher with his row of skinned goats, their flanks pink and shiny as burn scars. My father did not eat meat either, but he was quick to add that it was personal preference. According to him, there was no logic-based argument against the consumption of meat. I myself had sampled bites of chicken and mutton, even beef, from friends' lunchboxes, and apart from an initial queasiness, I liked them all. The one time I made a mistake of telling my mother, she held out her arm and said, still hungry, little beast? <laughs> she could be vicious, and yet there were times especially in a crowd, when she was pure energy, drawing the world to herself. She was already tall, but at these times, she became immense. 
her mouth would fall open, and her crooked incisor, which looked like a single note held on a piano, would acquire an oblique seductiveness. Men approached her, even when I was present. During a function at my fam father's factory one year, his floor manager tried to flatter her. That's a beautiful sari, he said, his eyes on her breasts. The floor manager was an energetic stub of a man who had been with my father since the beginning, had slept on the factory floor so they could save on a watchman. I had attended his son's birthday parties. Now he was looking at my mother's breasts. She was eating a samosa and there were crumbs on her cheek. Without pausing in her chewing, she said, the conference room is empty, shall we go? The floor manager swallowed hard, then glanced at me, as if I, a child, might tell him what to do. He sputtered something about getting her another samosa and almost tripped on his flight to the buffet table. My mother shot me a quick arch look before walking away. It was only when she prayed in front of her idols that she shrank, became a person with ordinary dimensions. Every morning, she tucked flowers around their brass necks and lit the blackened lamp and stood for a minute without bending or moving her lips. My father wisely refrained from making his usual speech about the illogicality of organized religion, and my mother, in turn, chose not to point out that his beloved college LP collection, carefully dusted and alphabetized, was as good as a shrine. Likewise, my mother never insisted that I prostrate myself or learn the names of her gods, though I sometimes wish she had. She never forbade me from joining either, but it was implicit. And in that, lay the fundamental irony of our relationship, as well as the clearest evidence of how she saw the world. My mother considered me, her only child, a suitable accomplice for the greatest secret of her life. But when she prayed, she wanted to be alone. Here is another story my father once loved to tell. When I was about two, I went through a phase where I belonged, body and soul, to him. I screamed bloody murder if he was in the room and not holding me, bloodier still when my mother tried to take me from him. I tolerated her while he was at work, but barely. One afternoon, seeing I was in a rare, calm mood, she hustled me out to go grocery shopping with her. It was a mistake. While she swiftly chose flour and oil, biscuits and tea, I'd started to whimper. By the time she was ready to pay, I'd launched into a full-blown tirade, howling, hitting her on the side of the head, clinging to any stranger that passed by. My mother was finally forced to ask the shopkeeper if she could use his phone. She called my father and explained, and 30 minutes later, he burst in with outstretched arms. He carried me home, a shameless grinning trophy, while my mother trailed behind us, lugging the groceries. 
I don't know when my allegiance shifted, when I went from being his to being hers. All I know are the facts. I was my father's daughter first, and then I became gradually and irrevocably my mother's. It's hard not to wonder how much might have been prevented if only I had loved him more, or perhaps loved her a little less, but that is useless thinking and perilous. Better to let things stand as they were. She, my incandescent mother, and I, her little beast. I'm very happy to read some more, but I just wondered if anybody had any questions. You are not obliged to have any questions, but just in case you did, I would be happy to answer one or two or five. Otherwise, I can continue to read. Read some more? Oh, there's a question. <laughs> yes. You do or you don't? Sorry, I couldn't. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> the, uh, there is already an audiobook version of this novel read by a much better reader than me, <laughs> oh, a professional reader. Uh, and I've listened to some portion of it, and she's who you want. She's who you want to read this book, <laughs> not me. <laughs> I promise you that. But thank you very much. <laughs> Oh no, I'm sorry to say that it's 14 hours long. <laughs> but it's 14 of the best hours of your life. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm going to read for 14 hours in case you didn't know that. <laughs> yes. Huh, that's an interesting question. Did I write all the parts with the mother at the same time? No, I, I she came very strongly in, in the beginning. When I started to write, her, her character was definitely the strongest, but no, I, I, I wrote the book, uh, yeah, and, sh and she arrived when she needed to arrive, and, and so no, it was over a period of time. But it was always fun to write her scenes. She was... She was, um, she's, uh, sh she's not like a debut author, let's just say. <laughs> she's much less nice than a debut author. Thank you. Her tenderness. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, she th she thrives. Thank you. Yeah, she th she's a character that thrives on being unpredictable. So, um, 
and which can be very destabilizing to anyone who's being raised by her. Yeah. Yes. The, it's not yet published in India. That's sort of under. It's being. We're we're trying to arrange all of that, and it should be in the next year or so. Um, as for whether the mother is based on any one person in particular, no, she isn't. Um, I don't even think that she is based on an amalgamation of people. I I rather think that she is um, she is my worst self. If I if I didn't care about having any friends or anybody ever speaking to me again, I would probably say those kinds of things. <laughs> if I if I one day decide to burn all my bridges, I will turn into her. <laughs> it will be as devastating, yes, right? <laughs> At least that. <laughs> no, I actually wrote none of this book while in graduate school. I had, I had, I wrote an experimental chapter that I submitted in order to get into graduate school and then I didn't touch it for two years. And then when I went back to it, that experimental chapter was entirely useless, so I started again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we start with our, our one and a half or 14? <laughs> um, coffee will be served sure, at some point. <laughs> this is like the ring cycle. <laughs> you can sleep if you like. I thought I would read uh, the scene. So the 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 novel is structured as a, as a journey. It's a very classical form, uh, and Shalini, my narrator, uh, decides that she is going to go from Bangalore, which is a huge city, and I'm sure you know, it's a huge city in the south of India, um, into the region of Jammu and Kashmir, which is way in the north of India, and a place she has never been, her knows very little about, in order to find a man her mother developed an unusual affection for, an unusual relationship with, when Shalini was a child. And this man disappeared in her adolescence, and she hasn't seen him for nearly 10 years. And so she decides, after her mother passes away, she decides that this is the thing that she needs to do. Uh, it's a very ill-considered decision for any number of reasons. Um, the, 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 the most pressing being that Kashmir is a, a volatile place to travel to. So, but she decides nevertheless she's going to do it. So the reason that I want to read this is perhaps it'll give you an idea of why she thought this man was important. Hopefully it will give you a sense of why she loves him um, and what he was to her mother. I was six the first time he came, and I still remember it. How my mother had not ceased moving, even for a second, all week. How she had decided the previous morning that her lantana bushes were sick, somehow infected, and had spent three hours pulling them up, only to abruptly abandon them, leaving the garden looking like a war zone. How she had surges of intense laughter at nothing. How she cooked a pile of vessels growing dangerously high in the sink, but how, at the same time, she claimed never to be hungry. How she seemed to have endless energy for play, 
devising elaborate games that soon wore me out, but left her unaffected. When the bell rang that afternoon, I was in the living room. I moved to answer, but all of a sudden she was behind me, one hand gripping my shoulder hard. With the other hand, she threw the door open. And there he was, a dark-haired man wearing a green kurta and a white skull cap, carrying over his shoulder a distended yellow bundle twice the width of his torso. His thick hair fell over his forehead, which was the color of unpolished rosewood, and his eyes were a light, stunning green. For a second, he stood there, perhaps wondering about the wrecked garden, then, in a deep, resonant voice that would become as recognizable to me as my own, he said to my mother in simple, polite Urdu, Madam, would you wish to buy these beautiful clothes from Kashmir? Sure, my mother answered, not missing a beat. But if I do, what will you wear? The stranger laughed, unhesitating, glad, as though he had not only been expecting her humor, but had traveled a long way just to hear it. My mother's grip on my shoulder tightened, though I couldn't tell whether it upset or pleased her. She was used to people being disconcerted by the things she said. This laughter was something new. Come in, she said, in a slightly milder tone. Let me see what you have. And here I must ask the unavoidable question. Why him? Why, of all the people who came to our house over the years to sell, to work, to visit, why should he have been the one she fixed her mind upon? It had to do with her mood that day, of course. The glittering in her eyes that had been there all week, but what else? The fact that he was handsome, in a style utterly foreign to our southern city. Those green eyes I'd never seen before except in actors on TV. Had these things been enough, at least to start with? He stepped inside with a ceremonial satisfaction, which I would come to think of his, as his trademark, as if our house were a dazzling place he'd been told off long ago. He hauled the bundle into our living room and tugged it open with an elegant motion, and there were clothes everywhere, spreading like a bright, choppy sea. My mother took a seat on the sofa across from him. I sat in between them. I did not know it then, but these would become our fixed places, our fixed roles, Bashir Ahmed speaking, my mother listening, and me watching them both. He was riffling through the clothes, speaking rapidly but plainly in Urdu, a speech he'd obviously given many times before. Six months for one piece and everything is handmade. What shall I show you first, madam? You tell me. Kurta, shawls, saris, everything is guaranteed 100% pure Kashmiri. 100% pure Kashmiri she echoed in a tone that could have just as easily been mockery as admiration. Then she waved her hand. All of it, show me all of it. He began with the shawls, ruby with pink paisley, white with mint paisley, each edged by a row of soft tassels, sinking one after the other in soft layers across his lap. It was a performance, practiced until flawless. The whole time he did not stop talking, his green eyes moving between my mother's face and the shawls. My mother watched their soundless descent, rapt. And even I, with my tomboy's revulsion for all things feminine, 
had to admit they were beautiful. When he had shown her all the shawls, she blinked. Anything else? He launched into the same routine with his kurtas, all of which had panels of delicate embroidery down the front. This time, he looked deeper into her face and spoke in a lower, more confidential voice, but she remained still, except for her eyes, which stayed riveted to the rise and fall of his hands, as though they might contain some vital code. When he came to the end of the kurtas, he started in with the saris, translucent jewel tone chiffon with chain-stitched pansies along the borders. And when those two were rejected, he sat back on his heels, surveying the disorder around him, biting his lip, trying to hide his exasperation. Hmm, my mother murmured. Now where are those beautiful clothes I was told about? His frown vanished in an instant. Madam, he said, shaking his head sorrowfully, I must be honest with you. I'm feeling very bad right now. If I had known about you before coming here, I would have brought my friend with me. She smiled. Your friend? Yes, my friend. He sells spectacles, you see. Maybe with the right pair, you would have been able to see my clothes properly, and you wouldn't have embarrassed yourself like this. I'd never heard anybody speak to my mother this way, with such liberty, such daring. She stared at him a moment, then threw her head back and laughed and laughed. I imagined he would shrink at that wild, uncontrolled sound, but he didn't. He just looked at her, with his head tilted to one side, smiling. Then, as if he'd suddenly remembered, he turned his large head to me. What about Betty here? He asked her. Would you like to see something for Betty? Yes, my mother said, before I could speak. The man dug around in the pile and came up with a white cotton blouse, sprays of delicate pink roses edging the neckline and both sleeves. He shook it out and then held it up to his own chest, without a trace of self-consciousness. It is so beautiful, he declared, it even looks good on an ugly fool like me. It sounds strange, but he was right. Not that he was ugly or a fool, he wasn't either. But he did look startlingly beautiful in that girl's blouse, with his dark hair falling over his forehead and his weathered throat rising so naturally from the pale, flimsy material. I glanced at my mother to find a strange expression on her face, a grimace that seemed to indicate real pain. Shalini, she said, and if nothing until then had made me sit up and take notice, that would have. She almost never used my name. What do you think? Do you like it? And even though the blouse was nothing I would have dreamed of choosing for myself, I nodded seemed like the only thing to do. Some aspect of her mood had communicated itself to me, but more than that, I sensed an unfamiliar thing in the room, a flash of new color for which I had no name. I was rewarded when she reached out and squeezed my hand. It seems like we'll be taking it, she said. It makes me very happy to know that at least one of you isn't blind, the man said. And then he too smiled at me. I flushed under the weight of their combined attention, one set of eyes green, the other deepest brown. The man coughed discreetly into his fist and named a price. And oddly enough, my mother, who ordinarily never lost a chance to haggle, agreed. He smiled, 
a figure of modest triumph, and began to pack up his wares. For a few seconds, she stared at his hands, which were busy folding and smoothing. Then she said in a rush, when will you come back? He glanced up, startled. He raked his hair back with his fingers, nudging the skullcap askew. Ah, I'm not sure, he said. I think I'm expecting some new items in two or three months. He glanced quickly at her. Should I, what I mean is, do you want me to? He broke off because she had started to scowl. I braced myself. Now, I thought, now she will destroy him. Now she will cut him down. But to my surprise, all she said was, yes, please. Thank you. We could all just go get a drink. <laughs> The narrator or the mother? Yes, I do too. that's a really interesting question I hadn't really thought to um, I hadn't really thought to categorize her in any way um, I don't really mentoring um, well I would hope so she's her mother <laughs> yeah um, it is hard to tell and and that's part of the um, it's part of where a lot of the tension for the narrator comes from where she's not entirely sure who's taking care of whom and um, with 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 parents like that who are so ready to display their or to 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 reveal their anger and their disaffection to their children um, I think to the children often have feel a pressure to step up and in some ways be the adult um, as for whether or not she's feminist I think uh, well the very act of the very act of speaking one's mind is not only, f it's not only unusual for women, it's pretty unusual for anybody in, s in civilized society. We, we tend to say only 10%, I think, of what we think. Um, and, uh, and the reason that she is at the point where she will say anything to anyone is not, it's a very dark reason. I mean, I think she has, she has re arrived at the point in her life where she realizes there's just nothing you know, all the things that she had wanted to do, perhaps, will never be done. And so there's a, a, such a deep sense of um, being beyond the pale that she really thinks that it will make no difference. Which is, which is, you know, th so it, that doesn't really come from a sense of, she's not saying, oh, by saying this, I'm empowered. By she's saying this, she's saying these things because she feels such a sense of, lack of power that she thinks it makes no difference. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, if you want to. I hope so. I, I would like to think of her that way. 
I think she's a, a dubious heroine, but most are. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No, that that makes sense to me. I will call. Her, I'll call her the existential heroine. She's not. No. No. That is for sure. She's not a princess. Um, no. I I like her a lot. I, I you know, even if when I don't always approve of her, I like her. I'm a debut author. <laughs> I'm told this will change. <laughs> sure. And and in terms of, you know, so the mother, I think, in, in many ways would be, you know, a villain. I mean, to, to certain people who were looking at this family. Uh, but, but you know, in the novel, I was, uh, she, she stays. She's a mother for a long time. And my, my interest was in creating a character, a narrator, who would in some ways be, be worse than her mother in, in different ways. Yeah, so... In the entire novel, no, there are men. Yeah, there are men for sure. They <laughs> men rarely are. <laughs> no, um, no, that's not the no. The men, in, I think, the men in the novel are very interesting um, and and very much very relevant. But I suppose in some ways it is a it's a it's a novel about a, a girl and her and, and her mother. Um, but but I think her father is is very interesting as well, and all the other, there, there are several men in the, the novel. At least they're interesting to me. I hope they're also interesting to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, thank you. Thank you for coming, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.